we on the leadership team have no impact on how the Blue Ribbon panel is going to vote. So you've just heard our opinions on some things and you've kind of heard us tossing around different things, primarily for the purpose of helping you all think about the teams. Um, But we have no impact on who's actually going to win. I'm actually not sure if any of the Blue Ribbon panel actually even listens to this podcast. (laughs) Um, And certainly if any of them did, they're not going to listen to our opinion about it. So you need to make up your own mind. Hello, and welcome to the Room Madness podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. We are so glad you're here. In this episode, I am joined by three other members of the Room Madness leadership team, Dr. Aki Udupa, Dr. Didam Sagan, and Dr. Guy Katz. Uh, these uh, members of our leadership team have been working hard on this tournament, and we are so excited to see it moving forward and closer to tournament time. If you've been following along on social media, you know that the bracket for the Room Madness tournament has been really revealed, uh, and so everyone now knows what all of the teams are uh, that will be in the tournament. And in this podcast, we're going to review some of those teams. We're not going to go into too much detail, and I'll explain why in a minute, but we're going to talk about those teams briefly so everyone knows what's in the team. And then we'll talk a little bit about what this will look like over the next couple of weeks as the tournament gets going. So right now, the bracket is released, and 14 fellowship programs from all around the country have each been assigned one team to review. And what they're going to do is they're creating scouting reports, which are going to go into detail about what these teams are. They're going to teach you about the team, and they're going to go through some of the current and future implications of that team. Like, why is that team important now? And why is this team or rheumatology concept important in the future? Those scouting reports are also going to offer up some clues as to could this team win its first round matchup or even the entire tournament. So those scouting reports are really going to be excellent learning resources for you as you go through and uh, read about the teams. And those scouting reports will be available by March 15th. And that is also the same day when the bracket will open for everyone to actually submit their own brackets where you read about the teams, you read the scouting reports, and then you fill out your bracket where you try to predict the winner of each of the matchups in the tournament. The tournament itself is going to start on March 27th and run through April 5th, which is essentially when the NCAA March Madness uh, Championship is. So it'll coincide with that. Um, So it'll be an exciting time. So again, um, this is just a little preview. The full tournament, including scouting reports made by fellowship programs all over the country, Uh, are going to be available on March 15th. And that's when you will be able to start filling out your brackets. The tournament will begin March 27th. So again, today, what we're going to do is we're just going to give a little bit of an overview of the teams, just so you have an idea of who's in the tournament. Um, As always in the show notes, there's additional resources for you to follow, um, like the Room Madness website, and you can always follow the conversation on Twitter. But um, without further ado, just first, I want to welcome everyone here with me 
for this podcast. So hello, Dr. Udupa, Dr. Sagan, and Dr. Katz. Hey there. Hello. Great. All right. So we are going to jump in uh, to starting uh, with the top left of the bracket. So if you've seen the bracket, um, you know that it begins with some really interesting teams about lupus and anca vasculitis. And so Dr. Udipa is going to take us through what those teams are. All right. Hey, everyone. We are so excited to get this uh, room madness finally going. I'm going to start with the lupus matchup. So that includes uh, belimumab and the belimumab uh, lupus nephritis trial, and then also includes the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 trials that discusses anifrolumab. Um this is a this is a tight race, um, but I think that maybe there might be a clear winner here. Um, belimumab, we know, is a human monoclonal antibody that neutralizes B cell survival factor, um, otherwise known as BLIS or BAF. Uh, we know that it's already FDA approved for the treatment of serologically and clinically active systemic lupus since 2011, but it's not really been clear what the role for belimumab has been in lupus nephritis. So that's what this uh, Bliss LN trial was aiming to do. It was published in NEJM in September of 2020, uh, sponsored by GSK, and was a phase three international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and really wanted to investigate the efficacy and safety of adding intravenous belimumab as an add-on therapy to standard induction therapy uh, for seropositive lupus patients with biopsy-proven active lupus nephritis. Um, the study found that patients who received the Benlista uh, were significantly more likely to achieve the primary endpoint, the primary efficacy renal response at week 104 than those who received standard therapy alone. So that was very, very exciting. And uh, we now know that uh, belimumab is FDA approved for the treatment of lupus nephritis and happens to be the first medication to achieve that title. Um, so, and then in the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 trials, we have a, a, a bit of an unknown uh, uh, medication, anifrolumab. It's a human monoclonal antibody to type 1 interferon receptor subunit 1 that was found to be efficacious in reducing lupus disease activity in phase 2 trials. And the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 studies, these, these were published in The Lancet and NEJM. They were funded by AstraZeneca. And really, they sought to confirm the efficacy and safety of intravenous anifrolumab versus placebo. Um, and both studies were phase three international randomized double blind placebo control trials um, where patients with serologically active and clinically moderate to severe lupus who were uh, either assigned to get um, the low dose anifrolumab or higher dose anifrolumab and or placebo in addition to existing stable treatment uh, uh, for lupus. It's worth noting that severe lupus nephritis patients, uh, neuropsych lupus patients were excluded from this study. Um, the primary outcome for TULIP-1 was the difference in the proportion of patients who achieved an SRI-4 response at week 52 with the higher dose anifrolumab uh, versus placebo. Um, it, it turned 
turns out there were pretty similar proportions uh, for this uh, SRI4 response between the two groups at week 52, and therefore the primary endpoint wasn't wasn't reached. The TULIP2 trial's primary endpoint uh, was really assessing the BICLA response at 52 weeks, and that study did find that the primary endpoint was met with the anifrolumab group having a significantly higher proportion of patients achieving a BICLA response. Um, so I kind of wanted to open up to you guys on kind of what you guys thought. Um, I have someone, I have a, a clear winner here, but I just wanted to hear what you guys have to say. Dr. Udupa coming out guns blazing, making a right. call. This is, <laughs> this is great. You know, I, I feel like our listeners need to know that you are at Duke and Duke has been tasked with making the scouting report for belimumab for lupus nephritis. So I feel like we need to we need to put that out there just so that our listeners can know who's who's talking here. Full disclosure, you know. Yeah, um, and I think it's you know I'm I'm interested to know what Dr. Sagan and Dr. Katz have to say because I know that it's exciting that we have an FDA approved treatment for lupus nephritis, and obviously lupus nephritis is really severe and terrible, and we really welcome any treatments there. But you know, I think we we need a little devil's advocate for anafrolumab because we have known for so long now that this interferon response is an important mechanism in lupus. And now we have, for the first time, uh, a randomized controlled trial, first of all, that worked. I mean, you know, belimumab worked, but also now we have another mechanism uh, in a randomized controlled trial that worked for lupus, which is uh, definitely saying something. And I know it's not FDA approved and it's not available for use yet, but at least we have a proof of concept that targeting this interferon pathway is actually an important thing to do and may actually help patients with lupus. And, you know, anifrolumab, maybe the results aren't as impressive as we had hoped they would be. Um, but that's not to say that this doesn't have implications now for patients uh, with lupus, as well as implications in the future for patients with lupus. Um, for researchers looking at the interferon pathway, okay, now we have this evidence that this works. Let's keep going. Um, so I, I, I think there's some arguments to be made. So we'll, we'll see. What do you all think? I agree, Dr. Leverens. I'm not sure that it's, it's quite as, uh, as clear as Dr. Yudupa is, is implying here. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think it's, it's just really remarkable that we have two positive randomized control trials even to begin with. Um, in, in lupus, I think that's something to celebrate. So just the fact that uh, this category can even exist is exciting. Um, and I, uh, I'm i very excited about both anaphorolumab and belimumab. And as you were saying, I think the fact that it's a, a new mechanism is really exciting. Um, you know, taking a, a drug that we already knew worked for lupus and showing that it works in another manifestation of lupus, um, while admittedly it is one of the worst manifestations of lupus, it's uh, not quite as novel as anifrolumab. That being said, the uh, potential clinical utility um, might be higher for belimumab earlier on uh, because we already are familiar with it and we use it. So I, I think there are really good arguments to be made on both, on both sides. Dr. Katz hedging his bets. So do we want to move on to ankyovasculitis? We definitely can do that. 
Um, so the next little pairing that we have uh, still towards the top left of the bracket is our vasculitis trials. Um, the first was uh, a major player last year, the Pexivas trial. Um, I think most of us can agree that treatment of severe ankyovasculitis can be really challenging. And we often employ the kitchen sink approach to save these patients. And part of that kitchen sink is plasma exchange, um, which has been hotly debated amongst rheumatologists, nephrologists, and pulmonologists, uh, feels like forever. And so this group decided to figure out if that was useful or not. And so the PEXIVAS study, it was published in NEJM in um, 2020, it's funded by the UK National Institute of Health. It sought to evaluate the use of plasma exchange and also tried to sort out uh, two separate oral steroid regimens in the treatment of severe ANCA-associated vasculitis. Um, they defined that as a GFR less than 50 or diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage. Um, death from any cause or end-stage renal disease um, was not significantly different uh, between the plasma exchange group and the control group. Um, and death from any cause or end-stage renal disease in the reduced-dose steroid group was comparable to the standard-dose steroid group, uh, meeting the criteria for non-inferiority. And also, serious infections at one year were less common in the reduced steroid group. So from that study, it, it seemed as though that plasma exchange did not reduce the in incidence of death or end-stage renal disease in these severe ankyovasculitis patients, and that a reduced steroid uh, taper was uh, non-inferior and probably safer uh, than using the standard dosing uh, for steroid taper that we had been used to using. So then uh, the next trial hot off the presses is the Avacapan uh, for the treatment of ANCA-associated vasculitis. Avacapan is a C5A receptor inhibitor. Um, and this trial was literally just published a couple of weeks ago from the time of this recording um, in NEJM. It was uh, sponsored by uh, Chemocentrics. Um, it was a randomized controlled trial in patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis who received either oral avacapan or oral prednisone on a tapering schedule, in addition to either getting cytoxan followed by thioprin or rituximab induction treatments. Um, and this uh, study had a good smattering of distribution of patients, which we often lack in, um, in kind of other trials about having a good amount of GPA patients and MPA patients and those who have new disease and relapsing disease. So really a good diverse group and 80% um, had renal involvement, you know, with um, a, like a solidly low mean GFR. Um, so it, a pretty severely affected group. And um, the first, there were two primary endpoints. The first primary endpoint was remission, which they defined as a BVAS of zero at week 26 uh, in uh, and no uh, steroid use in the prior four weeks. And then the secondary primary endpoint was a sustained remission between weeks 26 and 52. Both of these endpoints were tested for non-inferiority and for superiority. And this trial found that, found that avacaban was non-inferior, but uh, not superior to prednisone taper for the first primary endpoint of remission and was superior to prednisone with respect to sustained remission at week 52. So I know that everyone's excited about the Savakapan trial, maybe a little too excited. So I don't know. I, I feel like there's a clear winner here too. 
maybe, I don't know, I'm feeling confident today. Okay. Obviously it's exciting. We have a new therapy for ankyovasculitis and one that may make us not use prednisone, which is confusing. What? Uh, I feel like I'm going to need a hypnotist to make me stop using prednisone in ankyovasculitis. So I feel like somebody's going to need to do an implementation science trial following up the Avacapan trial to help rheumatologists get over our prednisone crutch uh, for ankyovasculitis. But I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible trial. But this is a matchup of two absolute giants um, in uh, ankyovasculitis. I mean, talk about two of the most amazing trials to come out for ankyovasculitis. And they come out just in time for them to compete head to head for the inaugural uh, Room Madness tournament. Um, actually, we had just sent out scouting report assignments, and then hours later, the Avacapan trial was published. Um, we saw it tweeted out on Wednesday night, and I emailed back the the fellows that we had assigned the. Um, uh, we actually were originally going to do Mainritz in three um, versus Pexivas. I was like, I take it back. You do Avacapan. So anyway, we're excited to see what um, what comes out of it. But I don't know. I mean, okay, Avacapan's exciting, but the Pexavast trial is just a giant. Um, I mean, just an incredibly large trial. Really important question. Should we do this plasma exchange for these incredibly sick patients? Something we've been wondering about. Every rheumatology fellow and attending on the inpatient consults every single week of the year is asking that question. And um, the Pexavast trial answered it. And it also taught us to use less prednisone. Granted, the other trial might tell us to use no prednisone, but that's neither here nor there. Um, we'll see. I don't know. I'm excited to see what the scouting reports say about um, these two trials. I'm totally with you. I, I'm really excited about the scouting, scouting reports. Um, I think that uh, the, the Pexavast trial, I mean, I, I still remember when it came out, how excited I was that there was the trial that um, you know we had been waiting for and that answered these really important questions. Um, I do think that some of the limitations of the trial might be the Achilles heel and, and what might make Avacapan come out on top. Um, like for example, the uh, data on Plex, uh, it's a little bit uh, challenging because there were relatively few rituximab patients um, and the endpoint that they chose was pretty far out from the initial presentation. Um, so it's, it's hard to say whether or not they truly would have seen an effect if one were there. Um, and then with the steroid data, that's, that was really promising. And now we have a different trial that used, uh, not no prednisone at all, but very little. Um, so I, I think that Avacapan might, might just win, uh, because of that. Though the other thing that I'll, the other thing that I'll say is, uh, I don't know if anyone else has this concern, but I, I do worry that people will misinterpret the Vacapan data and use it as, uh, as part of the, the kitchen sink, as Dr. Yudupa was, was discussing. And instead of using it instead of steroids, I worry that people will use it together with steroids. And I worry about the, the potential risks uh, that'll come with that. So that might be a, a downside, an unintended downside of the Vacapan trial. That's a really good point. I agree. I agree. I think that's going to be a very tight uh, race there between Pexavas and Avocopan trial. 
I don't think we ever had any treatment that's uh, been shown to be superior to prednisone. So that's definitely very, very, and in terms of the mechanism of action, again, uh, also Alacopin is very novel. But on the other hand, like Guy said, Pexavestrile is uh, answering two very important clinical questions, usoplasma exchange and how do we dose steroids in these patients? So I think it's going to be really tight, Jace, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I think one of the things I'm looking forward to in this tournament is the discussion among rheumatologists and rheumatology fellows and trainees um, about these topics, um, more than even just the outcome. I'm just looking forward to seeing what people talk about on social media and in the Facebook group and on Twitter about the results of these trials, um, kind of addressing these things that you all are talking about here. Um, So I'm excited for us to learn from each other about what we think about this. Moving on to the next section of the bracket where we are going to talk about some miscellaneous uh, rheumatologic diseases like IgG4-related disease and relapsing polychondritis. So Dr. Katz, uh, you want to take us through some of these matchups? I would love to. Uh, so we're now in the, the bottom left corner of the bracket. Um, and I'll, I'll get started with um, the, the first matchup, which is IgG4-related disease classification criteria and uh, the the relapsing polychondritis subtypes. Um, Now, here's my disclaimer. Uh, IgG4-related disease uh, is a disease I I have a lot of interest in. I'm very fortunate to work with the the people who are involved in making these criteria, and and, uh, they're my attendings, they're my mentors, um, and uh, my fellowship program will be involved uh, or will be making the uh, the scouting report for this this team. So I can't say I'm entirely unbiased, um, but I do think that it's one of the most exciting thing that's, things that's happened in our field in a long time. Um, so this was published by, uh, by uh, Dr. Wallace et al. in uh, Arthritis in Rheumatology and Annals of Rheumatic Diseases. Um, and uh, so just a little bit of an overview, IgG4-related disease is a, a rare fibroinflammatory disease of likely autoimmune etiology. Um, it can affect nearly any organ. Um, and it's, it's notoriously difficult to diagnose because there, there isn't uh, one particular finding that's entirely specific to the diagnosis. And it really is, it really is a combination of clinical factors, um, uh, radiologic factors, histologic factors, um, and uh, other findings like labs. So these clinical, uh, the classification criteria were intended to um, help uh, identify the disease and, and define, define it better for uh, primarily research use. But it, uh, like many of the other classification criteria we have, um, these criteria are extremely useful clinically as well. So the way this was done was 86 physicians uh, from around the world identified 1,000 patients with IgG4-related disease and 800 mimickers of IgG4-related disease, and they compared uh, and contrasted these these patients um, to develop a a system of of classification criteria. Very interestingly, there are 32 exclusion criteria in in these classification criteria, which isn't something we see in other um, classification criteria. And uh, they, they use a weighted um, point-based system to include different manifestations of the disease. Uh, and uh, by getting to a certain threshold of points, a patient can be uh, classified as having IgG4-related disease. The sensitivity of these uh, classification criteria is in the high 
90s and the specificity is in the mid 80s, which is really good test characteristics. So I think this is a, a really useful uh, and, and novel classification criteria. So I, I think it w- they were uh, put together really nicely and um, just reading the classification criteria themselves uh, is so informative about what the disease is and what the disease isn't. Um, and then it's paired up against relapsing polychondritis uh, and the, the subtypes, which was published by uh, Marcella Ferrata et al. in um, Arthritis and Rheumatology, which is a really interesting study that looked at uh, 73 patients with relapsing polychondritis, uh, another very rare disease, but one that um, I think most rheumatologists have a little bit more familiarity with. Um, and they uh, looked at certain clinical variables to try to see if they can identify different subtypes of the, uh, of the disease. And they did find that there were three distinct groups um, that they labeled as type 1, type 2, and type 3. Um, type 1 was characterized by ear chondritis, tracheomalacia, saddle nose deformity, and subglottic stenosis, some of the things that we uh, classically think of um, as part of this disease. Um, and uh, type 2... Um, was characterized by tracheomalacia and bronchomalacia without some of those other findings. Uh, And interestingly, the median time to diagnosis in this subtype was 10 years. Uh, So it's important to note that the the presence or absence of certain clinical features made it either easier or more difficult to diagnose these subtypes. Um, And then type 3 was characterized by tenosynovitis and ear chondritis. So I think this is a a really useful study. particularly for research purposes so that the the different subtypes can be um, defined in research and uh, different treatments can be um, evaluated for each. But I also think it's really useful clinically um, because uh, especially for uh, types two and three that might be a little bit less classic uh, compared to what we generally think of, which is all of those manifestations that are in type one, it's, it's important to recognize that patients can have um, just some of those manifestations and still have the disease. Um, so I, I think having these subtypes will be really helpful for clinicians as well to recognize this disease better. Uh, so we've got two, two really wonderful studies on rare diseases um, that are miscellaneous but are seen by, by most uh, rheumatologists at some point. Again, I, I know that I'm, I'm not entirely unbiased, but I think that there, there's a lot of um, really novel information about IgG4-related disease that is, uh, is published in these, uh, these classification criteria, and I think it's just a, a really exciting development. But I'm really curious to see what or to hear what the rest of you have to say about this. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for your disclaimer. Uh, you know, uh, it's good to know where you're coming from with IgG4-related disease classification criteria. It was really important um, work, both of these studies. The, um, the IgG4-related disease classification criteria, as you mentioned, are so useful, um, not only for research, but have some important things to teach clinicians as they're thinking through that, that condition. Um, and, you know, IgG4-related disease is kind of the hot new diagnosis. You know, internal medicine residents are ordered IgG subclasses left and right. You know, it, you can mention it in any in any differential diagnosis of a mass lesion, and you're just you you know people are going to nod. Um, but you know the the interesting thing about the relapsing polychondritis subtypes paper is that's a disease that's been around for a long time. But that paper taught us if if you really look through that paper, you'll see that that what we classically think of, what you read about in the textbook about relapsing polychondritis, 
um, is actually the least common type of relapsing polychondritis, at least in their study. And when you look at the time to diagnosis of the other two subtypes, it is much longer than that classic type. And so I would argue that familiarizing yourself with these relapsing polychondritis subtypes as they actually are and are really wonderfully defined, you, you actually are going to be really well equipped not to miss relapsing polychondritis. And so I, I don't know, I, I actually think it's an, it, you know, people may think it's a little bit of an underdog, but it's something to consider um, that this relapsing polychondritis subtypes paper um, is certainly a worthy challenger to the IgG4 related disease classification criteria. And I'm excited to see what people, how the blue ribbon panel uh, rates uh, uh, these teams. Guy, you are a better human being than me for declaring your biases. I was clearly biased and uh, unashamed about it. So uh, kudos to you for being a better person. Um, I definitely agree with IgG4 related disease being really hyped up right now. It is on everybody's mind, uh, stretching from medicine colleagues all the way to surgery colleagues. So um, I think it's definitely almost reaching a mainstream level, which is kind of amazing. Um, I, I I totally agree, David, about your point about the underdog uh, relapsing polychondritis and how it really is going to finesse the diagnosis and uh, make us better as rheumatologists. But I think for just generally being a doctor, um, that a lot of our other disciplines are seeing IgG4 related disease and maybe misdiagnosing it or, you know, um, not really entertaining other ideas as much because it just seems like a catch-all. And I think the classification criteria is going to do a great job of allowing really both rheumatologists and non-rheumatologists to be more systematic about it. So I'm actually for the, uh, top dog. She's a fair weather fan. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Yes, I agree with you, actually. You know, I am actually voting for IgG correlated disease classification criteria, too. So it's actually, I mean, you're right. It's, it's definitely helpful in terms of um, you know, increasing the recognition uh, and, you know, uh, having this diagnostic criteria definitely helps. I, I feel like I'm using that in the clinic sometimes too. But um, also for research purposes, it's this is such a heterogeneous disease, right? It affects almost any organ in the body. Uh, to be able to do, um, you know, research, I feel like it's important to be able to classify these patients as, you know, probable or definite diagnosis. Uh, and I feel like after this classification pro uh, criteria was published, I think we will see more and more IgG4-related disease research because of it. Sounds good. The only other thing I'll say for lapsing polychondritis is that Peter Grayson is a part of that research group, and we're going to hear about Vexus a little later in the same part of the tournament. And uh, Peter Grayson is a part of the group that uh, came from that team. And on Twitter recently, Peter Grayson did say that if two of his uh, studies are pitted against each other, that he would cry. And I think that is a worthy reason to vote for teams in this tournament. Uh, so I just want to put that out there as well for another reason to vote for uh, relapsing polychondritis subtypes. Great. Let's move on. So uh, speaking of uh, Vexus, um, it's a part of the small but mighty 
uh, aspect of the tournament. And as you all may have mentioned, may have noticed already with some of the teams that we have in here, we have some of these giant teams, but we also have some of these teams that are in, um, having these smaller niches of um, rheumatology because a big purpose of our tournament is to help people explore new areas that they may have not explored before in rheumatology and to highlight the amazing work that's happening in all different conditions. So we have a small but mighty region um, and Dr. Katz is going to take us through um, those teams. Yes, I am very excited about this region. I think that there's a lot of really exciting stuff here. So the, the two groups are daratumumab, which is an anti-CD38 um, agent in uh, severe refractory lupus and vexus, which Dr. Leverins was just referring to. Um, so I'll start with daratumumab. Um, uh, again, it's an anti-CD38 antibody. It's used in multiple myeloma and it depletes long-lived plasma cells, um, which has been hypothesized to be a, 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 uh, an important feature in the pathoph pathophysiology of lupus. Um, uh, so in um, this NEJM uh, paper, it describes two patients that had severe refractory lupus in whom daratumumab was used. Um, and you don't frequently see any JM papers that highlight how two patients were treated, which I think uh, sort of gets at how important this, uh, this finding might be. Um, so the first case was a 50-year-old woman with class 3, 4, or I'm sorry, class 3 and class 5 lupus nephritis, as well as a number of other um, uh, manifestations who failed all of the usual treatments um, and then she received uh, daratumumab and had rapid improvement in her proteinuria, um, uh, resolution of her pericardial effusion, uh, normalization of her complements, all of her symptoms improved. Um, and case two was a 32-year-old woman with autoimmune hemolytic anemia, ITP, cutaneous vasculitis, uh, again, a number of other um, SLE features. Um, who also failed all of the usual treatments uh, like cyclophosphamide, mycophenolate, bulimimab, uh, rituximab, azathioprine, methotrexate, I could go on. Um, and then in this patient as well, all of the manifestations improved or resolved with daratumumab. Um, so I, I think that um, even though this is just two patients, it's incredibly exciting about the world of, um, of lupus. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about other uh, clinical trials and including bliss Ellen and the, the, the tulip trials, but also in, in recent years, a lot of, um, lupus trials do exclude really severe disease because it's harder to show an effect in, in that sort of setting. But we've all seen, uh, lupus patients and, and other patients in other diseases who have had just really severe refractory disease that have, has been really hard to control. So I think the idea that we might have found an agent that might be helpful in that sort of setting is really huge. But the, the small but mighty uh, team that it's paired up against is Vexus, which is another giant in the world of, uh, of rheumatology over the past year. So without going into too much detail, um, uh, and this is the uh, paper uh, published by Peter Grayson's group that Dr. Leverance was referring to. Um, they use the genotype-driven analysis of genes associated with ubiquitination, not ubiquitination, as Dr. Leverance pointed out in episode six. Um, and uh, they found a, a somatic mutation in X-linked UBA, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the X-linked UBA gene, which is um, involved in ubiquitination. And they found that this um, 
uh, somatic mutation was associated with a particular autoinflammatory disease um, in older men. So this, it, the disease itself is very interesting in that it has features of MDS, like cytopenias and dysplastic bone marrow, as well as vasculitis and relapsing polychondritis, has fevers and neutrophilic um, cutaneous and pulmonary inf inflammation. Um, so a, a really um, wide uh, uh, range of clinical phenotypes. Um, and a lot of these patients were previously diagnosed with other conditions like MDS or like vasculitis, like polyarteritis nodosa, um, or relapsing polychondritis or others. There, there was a characteristic uh, presence of vacuoles in the myelin and erythroid precursors in the bone marrow, which is one of the things that was seen in most of the patients and really suggestive of the, the diagnosis. Um, so the disease itself is highly inflammatory, highly morbid, often fatal, um, and is remarkably refractory to treatment. Really, prednisone was the only thing that was consistently effective, and they, they needed high doses to control the disease. Um, but so I think this is interesting because, well, first it's a, a new diagnosis in rheumatology, which is always just so exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this started as a, a really rare series of, of, uh, just over 20 patients. Uh, I was fortunate to recently hear a talk by Peter Grayson and, uh, he pointed out that he's had a lot of people approach him and he's been doing a lot of testing, uh, of the UBA1 gene and finding a lot of this diagnosis. So it might not be quite as rare as we, we, uh, thought from the initial uh, publication. And, uh, you know, it's a, a really interesting disease itself uh, with a lot of overlap between rheumatic and non-rheumatic diseases. Um, and then on the more basic science side of this, the, the genotype-driven approach uh, and the, the bench-to-bedside um, science that was done in this paper is just, uh, it's really beautiful. Um, so I think this this is a, a really exciting uh uh, finding in rheumatology. And I, I think that this is going to be a, a team that's going to be, um, hard to beat. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, both of these, um, both of these papers really had some incredible science. I mean, I, you know, with the anti-CD38 paper, I, I, it's really remarkable the amount of work that they did to analyze what happened to just these two patients. And I, I agree. Refractory lupus is horrible and it's just horrible. And it's so, so hard to treat. And I, we all have patients, I'm sure, that fit this bill. And we are by no means in this tournament, you know, saying that people should be using this medication in this instance. But it is really interesting to think about a mechanism, uh, or, or at least targeting these long-lived plasma cells, which we've never really been able to get to safely before. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to think about the potential for this kind of treatment in the future for these really sick refractory lupus patients. And I don't know, I mean, you know, I, I know this is kind of a long shot, but you know, what if this, that team, um, people realized, okay, these long lived plasma cells are really important. What if, you know, people thought about the potential long-term implications of this and now, and then we have it matching up against, um, uh, uh, map for lupus nephritis. I don't know. Um, uh, just, you know, thinking about it. Um, but yeah, you know, Vexus is exciting. Um, you know, I talked about it a lot in a previous episode and Dr. Udupa knows that on consults together, I spent about one whole week asking her, but, but were there vacuoles in the bone marrow biopsy? So, uh, I think I drove her a little bit nuts with that, but you know, we're all looking for it now and, uh, it's exciting, um, to know about this disease. So. We'll see what happens.
I can confirm that I have been a victim of David's enthusiasm for Vexus. Um, but uh, uh, I learned a lot reading about the anti CD38 antibody therapies for refractory lupus. I think um, where I worry uh, a little bit about it is, and they mentioned this multiple times in, in, in the paper, I believe, is that there, it, it just seems like it's a bit nonspecific in the way that it's achieving its therapeutic target. And then there's a lot of like bystander, innocent bystander effect of uh, the treatment. So I just worry about um, its specificity for lupus and other autoimmune diseases. All right. Thanks so much for listening. That was part one of our review of the teams in the Room Madness bracket. Stay tuned for part two, which will be posted very soon. As a reminder, number one, this is just a brief overview of the teams in the tournament. The scouting reports, which are being made by 14 fellowship programs from all around the country, are really going to give you the skinny about these teams. They're going to teach you about why these teams might win or why they might not win, and teach you a lot of just about, about rheumatology. So we're going to be reviewing those scouting reports on this podcast, and they'll also be available on the Room Madness website starting March 15th. Also, as a reminder, you heard us make some calls on this podcast episode where we said who we think might win. Just remember, we again have no influence on what actually is going to happen in the tournament. The winners of each matchup are decided by the Room Madness Blue Ribbon panel. So learn about the teams, make up your own mind, submit your predictions starting March 15th, and enjoy the tournament starting March 27th. All right. Thank you. See you next episode.